in our hearts in our worship as we come to the Lord before we open the word together shall we our father God we thank you we can sing those words tonight Lord Jesus we enthrone you and we do want to enthrone you in our hearts and in our praises and Lord we want you to be Lord and King of this church too we enthrone you as it were here too and we pray that you would therefore take full control and have all authority Lord over Uh, the opening of your word now this is your word this is the the king's word and we pray that it will be blessed to our hearts as we look at it tonight though we may be looking at a small portion we pray that it will be a rich treasure to us lord as we ask this in jesus name amen so please turn with me in your bibles to isaiah and chapter 16 isaiah and chapter 16 And our text tonight is verse 5, but we will read verses 1 to 5 just to put it in context. Isaiah chapter 16. And verse 5, we're in the throne zone tonight, talking about the Messiah's throne in the millennial kingdom. And we'll explain about that in just a moment. But Isaiah chapter 16 verse 1 says, Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest. So shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcasts, do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, for the executioner is at hand. Sorry, the extortioner is at hand. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. And then our text. In mercy, the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice, and hastening righteousness. Praise the Lord. Please keep your Bible open there. Uh, It's not a film I'd recommend, but there's a film uh, which has the actor Tom Cruise in it, which is called The Minority Report, which is quite a famous film. And it's a a film about a special sci-fi team of police which have started using people who seem to have predictive abilities to find out when crime is going to happen and be ready to act in that place or even act beforehand to stop people committing crime. Now that's science fiction but interestingly enough in Chicago there is a team of people who have started working with the police who have started using a computer with an algorithm that predicts crime and uh, they have had a 90% success rate according to the Daily Mail newspaper at predicting where crime will be within a week and they look at basic statistics how many people there are in the area at the time and uh, the sort of things that are going on uh, the events the the temperature all the things go in the algorithm and they say is it likely that we're going to have uh, a lot of things happening in this area at this time and the police there have used it uh, apparently to 
great success and it's being exported to other cities. When they tried it in this country, the, the, the police said, no thanks, we don't need that. And, uh, and they sent it back. But it's, uh, it seems to be quite an amazing thing how they can look at certain uh, uh, ingredients. I suppose like you would say there's more road rage in hot weather, things like that, and uh, predict things and prepare for them. Well, man likes to predict things, doesn't he? He likes to think he knows uh, the future and tries to work out the future. And that's why the Bible is so amazing. Because the Bible doesn't predict the future, it prophesies the future. It's the word of the living God. And it's not a guess. It's not an algorithm looking at a set number of uh, ingredients to bring about something. It is the word of God, the, the word of God's plan, the script of scripture to reveal what is going to happen in the future. One of the things the Bible says is going to happen in the future is that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back again a second time and reign on the earth as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, today we're in a period of time which is called the Church Age. We're the age after the cross when the church was born at the day of Pentecost and it will continue until the rapture of the church and the church is taken out of this world when the Lord Jesus comes in the air for his church. That's not the second coming, that's the rapture. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he will descend in the air and we will meet him in the air and uh, he will take us back to glory. Then we know that there will be seven years of judgment which will follow uh, this event on the earth, which is called the tribulation. And those seven years are spelt out in the book of Revelation and they predict or prophesy, I should say, the, the pouring of three waves of judgment on the earth. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, a terrible time of God's judgment coming on the earth, rather like the plagues coming on Egypt in the days of Pharaoh to bring the people to repentance. And at the end of that time, then the Lord Jesus Christ will come back to earth, not in the air, but to earth, and he doesn't come back for his church, he comes back with his church uh, at the second coming revealed in Revelation chapter 19. And at the, after that, he will then establish his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. This is all spelt out in Revelation 19 and 20 in chronological order so you can see it. Revelation 20, he will reign on the earth for a thousand years. It's an event we call the millennium in that area there. And that comes before the final event of the great white throne judgment and uh, then the new heavens and the new earth. And that thousand year reign of Christ is an event which is predicted, sorry I'm going to keep saying that word by accident, prophesied in scripture and the details fill so much of the Old Testament prophets including and perhaps especially the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah here uh, gives a wonderful prophecy about the throne of the Messiah. Now, this is one of the growing revelations in Isaiah's book about the messianic king who will come. And it all starts way back in Isaiah 7 with that great prophecy uh, about the virgin giving birth 
to a son and his name will be Emmanuel. The Christmas prophecy, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Then in chapter 9, you remember we're told that his name, unto us a, a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name will be wonderful, counsellor, mighty God. And those beautiful revelations of his name, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. And we're told that the government will be on his shoulders And he will reign on the throne of David. And that's a part of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. Then in chapter 11, we come to the next prophecy, which tells us more about what his kingdom will be like. And we read about the, 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 I was going to say the lion, the wolf lying down with the lamb, and uh, the peace throughout the earth at the time of Christ's reign. And all those are Christmas passages that people love to preach at Christmas time, and they stop there. And it's such a shame because they miss one more. And it's this one we're looking at tonight in Isaiah 16 verse 5 about the Lord Jesus sitting on David's throne and reigning. And it's a beautiful prophecy about the Messiah's throne in the millennial kingdom. The one who Isaiah the prophet saw in the year King Uzziah died lifted high up on the throne of glory and his train filled the temple. That same one who he saw enthroned in heaven, he also sees prophetically enthroned on earth when Jesus comes again. And that's what this passage is about. And it's one of the five thrones of the Lord Jesus Christ revealed in scripture. You know, there's five different thrones revealed of Christ in scripture. We have his father's throne uh, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, where he says, If anyone overcomes, he will sit with me on my throne as I've sat with my father on his throne. And uh, that's where he sat today in heaven on his father's throne. The second throne of Christ in scripture is called the Bema seat. That's what it is in the Greek. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he's talking there about believers at the time of the rapture will be brought before the judgment seat of Christ. Not for a judgment for their sins. Our sins have all been paid for on the cross in full. There's nothing left for you to pay. There shall be therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you're not coming before this throne to get a good ticking off. There's no condemnation, no judgment. We've passed from judgment, we've passed from death to life. That's the glory of the gospel. But this is a judgment of our works where we will be given rewards. And that's what the Bema seat, the Bema seat was a, a throne of the, of the Caesars or the city governors at the Olympic Games and things like this, where they would give the crowns to the competitors for how well they had done, gold, silver and bronze and so on. And we will appear before Christ's Bema seat to receive the rewards uh, for our service, whether good or bad uh, in heaven. So that's the second throne of Christ. And then the third throne of Christ is David's throne. You remember the prophecy given to Mary uh, by Gabriel that he shall be great and he shall sit on the throne of his father David and of his kingdom there shall be no end and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. Well, that's David's throne and that's the throne we're talking about tonight the throne in the millennium when Christ reigns on the earth and then after that there's another throne when Christ sits on the great white throne in Revelation 20 and that is the throne of judgment for the unbelievers that's a judgment you will not stand before if you are born again 
praise God. You will be with Christ. You won't be standing before him. Your salvation has already been secured. But this is for those whose names are not in the book of life. And sadly, they will be taken away from that great white throne of judgment to the lake of fire. But Christ will sit on that great white throne at the end of all time. And then his final throne that we're told about in Revelation 22 verse 1, who is in the new creation, when he sits on the throne of God and of the Lamb, as we were uh, singing about this morning, and it's spoken about there. So those are the five thrones of the Lord Jesus Christ revealed in Scripture. And actually, I have to say, anywhere the Lord Jesus sits is his throne, isn't it? You know, when Jesus sat in Simon Peter's boat, as we were thinking about a few weeks ago in Luke 5, he was enthroned. He was reigning. And uh, he commanded the fish into the nets. And Peter fell at his knees. Why at his his knees, not his feet? Because the Lord was sat. He was sat in the boat. And he was commanding. When the Lord went up the the Mount of the Beatitudes and, and sat there overlooking Galilee and sat down on a rock and gave that majestic Sermon on the Mount, the manifesto of the King in Matthew 5 to 7, he was enthroned, wasn't he? And he gave the greatest teaching there's ever been. Wherever Christ sits is his throne. But this is especially uh, a throne of interest to us in the book of Isaiah. And this 16th chapter is a rather interesting chapter because it's actually a prophecy about the judgment of God on Moab. And uh, Isaiah had been prophesying the coming judgment of of Moab, which today is in the land of Jordan. And uh, it was going to be judged by the Assyrians who came down into this part of the, uh, that part of the world in, in about the uh, 8th century before Christ. And they were going to invade these different lands around the land of Jerusalem, they, uh, around the city of Jerusalem. Now, they weren't going to be able to conquer Jerusalem itself because Hezekiah was going to bring it before the Lord and the Lord was going to defend Jerusalem, as we read in chapter 36 and 37, a wonderful, wonderful account of deliverance. But he was going to conquer... They they were going to conquer the neighbouring uh, uh, countries and cities, including Moab. And so Isaiah commended them and said in verse 1, send the lamb to the ruler of the land, meaning the, the ruler of, of, of Judah, from Selah to the wilderness to the mount of the daughter of Zion. And he's talking here about appealing to the king of Judah to give them refuge. Now, Moab had been a sheep breeding nation. We read about that in 2 Kings chapter 3. You remember the story about Elisha with the, uh, the ditches they dug and the, the, the water that miraculously filled those, those, uh, uh, those ditches to save the army? Well, that happened because the king of Moab had rebelled against the kings of Israel and they had stopped giving their tribute of sheep and lambs. But now he says, come back and send a lamb to the Judean king. And of course that lamb would be going to the temple. It would be a sacrifice to offer to the God. So if you come to the the kings of Judah for refuge, you come to the God of Israel for refuge. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, send it from Selah, which is Petra, that rock city in, in, uh, in Edom, Moab area, to the wilderness, uh, at the border on the other side of Moab. So take them from there and bring it to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Bring it to, to Judah. 
And he said it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of its nest. It'll, it'll travel to get there. But just as the people are refugees, they shall then find refuge with the people of Judah. And then the Lord prophesies in verse 3 and 4 about how actually in the future, Judah will even find refuge in Moab. You'll have a reverse situation. And that's prophesied elsewhere in scripture when in the tribulation, the Jewish people will take refuge in that city of Petra, as we've mentioned in Bible studies in the past. But all this climaxes in verse 5 with the reference to the king, the one on the throne. And he's saying he's the one you need to put your trust in, the king who is to come, who will sit on David's throne. Not Hezekiah, the king on David's throne now, but the king who is to come, the one that will sit on this throne in truth. I like the fact that he says the one who will sit on it in truth, not in falsehood, because you remember there were false kings of Judah and false queens of Judah. We had wicked Queen Athaliah, who was uh, not meant to be on the throne of Judah, but she killed off the royal family just about, apart from Joash, and she claimed the throne. And then we had Herod later on put there as a puppet king by the Romans. Now, he shouldn't have been there either. He was an Idumean, but he was there on the throne. But this one will reign on the throne in truth in the day to come. And so it's a wonderful passage about the Messiah's throne in the kingdom. And uh, I want us to see tonight what a blessing that throne is going to be. It's going to be a blessing for three reasons. It will be a source of relief. It will be a sign of restoration. And it will be a seat of righteousness. And that's what the three clauses in this uh, verse here uh, teach us one by one. So let's have a look at these blessings about the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes again. First of all, we see it will be a source of relief because in verse 5, in the first part of this, using the New King James Version, it says, In mercy, the throne will be established. I came across an interesting verse in the book of Proverbs recently that said this. Proverbs 20 verse 28. Mercy and truth preserve the king and by loving kindness he upholds his throne. In other words, they're saying it's a good thing for a king to be merciful and to have loving kindness. And those two words, mercy and loving kindness, are the different ways, different Bible translations put this mercy in verse 5. They say in loving kindness or in mercy, the throne of Jesus will be established. And it's true when the Lord Jesus comes to reign, he is going to establish a reign which will be a source of relief and blessing to the people. In great contrast to the wicked leaders that they will have had up until his coming, especially we think of the Antichrist, the ultimate form of that, then he will be a a great merciful king who will bring great relief and blessing. That's one of the things we saw in Psalm 72 when we read it earlier on. Did you notice that? It said in verse 12 to 14, For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence. And precious shall be their blood in his sight. Like David's throne, it would be a throne of mercy. David was a merciful king, wasn't he? And uh, sometimes even to his enemies, he had mercy. And the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ will be a throne of mercy and great relief. And people in that 
they will be able to bring him their concerns. They'll be able to come to him with their concerns, knowing that he can help them. Because the one who sits on the throne will be, as Isaiah called him, the mighty God. You know, he's, a, he's not like a normal human king, he's a divine king. And he can act in power to help us. He'll be able to give them help with their decisions. They'll be able to seek his guidance from the wonderful counsellor. They'll be able to come to him with their temptations and struggles. As Hebrews 2.18 tells us, he understands our infirmities. They'll be able to come to him uh, to help them grow in wisdom and knowledge and truth. You see, this throne is going to be the throne of a unique king. He's going to be a king who is divine, and yet he is also a priest and a prophet and a king. Zechariah, another prophet uh, after the exile, put it like this in Zechariah 6 verse 13. He said about Jesus, so he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And what does that mean between them both? It means he will be in both the position of the king and the priest. Now, the kings couldn't be priests. Do you remember King Uzziah tried to act like a priest? And he went into the temple to offer a sacrifice and leprosy broke out on his forehead. God said, no, you're not allowed to do that because you're not a priest. And, and King Saul tried to act as a, uh, as a priest, didn't he, offering sacrifice? And uh, he wasn't allowed to do that either and got uh, the wrath of Samuel for that. Uh, but the priest also couldn't be a king. But this king will bring the two together because he's not of the line of Judah only. He's also a king after the order of Melchizedek, the king priest who was once in Jerusalem back in the days of Abraham and not limited by the Levitical law uh, like the king the priests of Levite are so what that means is we have a king priest who can help us spiritually he can he can pray for us intercede for us as he does in heaven now and his throne will be a throne of blessing in every conceivable way what a beautiful thing to think of the throne of the Lord Jesus being like this You know, some kings in the Bible, like King Ahasuerus, the king in the days of Esther, you couldn't just walk up to his throne. You couldn't come up to his throne. Uh, Esther was worried about going to the king. Do you remember? She said, because unless the king's invited me to come, she said, the the, the king's law is one, that anybody who comes before him must die. They were protective of their privacy and of their space. They were worried about assassination attempts. You couldn't just go in and see them. But this king... His, his, op- his throne is open as a source of relief for people to come to him. Such a blessing. I remember our, uh, an elder in a church that Heather and I went to once, and he was a scientist, uh, an internationally recognized scientist, a, a great man of God, a great man of science. And you can be both if you're true to the word. And uh, he would travel the world. Uh, giving lectures on his his speciality was in in the effects of nuclear fallout and he was very very much in demand at the time of the gulf war and he would travel the world and he came back from china on one occasion and he said he he when he was there he did some sightseeing and he he went into some of these ming dynasty uh, 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 palaces and he said they're approaching the throne room it was all designed to create awe. 
You would go into one room and they would close the doors. Then the other doors would open. You'd go into another room, you'd have more doors to open. You'd keep going through one room after another and the rooms were getting greater and greater and more impressive. And you really felt as you were coming, whoa, this is, what's going, where am I going here? You know, you started off a humble person coming from outside. Inside, you really knees knocking by the time you get into the throne room. And he said, what a difference coming to the Lord Jesus. No less God, but one who we can approach and find blessing and help. This is a a very real thing for for us to look forward to. You say, John, wouldn't it be great to have a throne like that now that we could come to? I'm glad you said that. Because I, I want you to know, we do have a throne like that now. What does the book of Hebrews say? Hebrews 4.16 Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that's talking about the Lord's throne in heaven now. You see, what he will be on earth when he comes is what he is in heaven now. And he is the king. He is the one who intercedes for his people. And he is the one we can approach with our concerns. And we can find his help with. In mercy, his throne is established. And he loves to receive us when we come to him in humility and repentance and faith. And we can find help, mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. I read... um, interesting little thing in a, uh, a, a Christian magazine about one of the Supremes. Do you remember Diana Ross and the Supremes? You know, see some heads nodding. Uh, the, the famous Motown singers. Well, one of these uh, in, in, the, in the Supremes was a lady called Mary Wilson. And uh, she had a church background. And she professed to be a believer. Uh, one who trusted in Christ. And she had a lot of difficulties in life. Her biggest sadness came right towards the end of her life when she was driving their Cherokee Jeep and uh, had an accident. And the car rolled over. And she survived, but her 16-year-old son, who was in the car with her, died. What a sadness to come to her. Do you know what she said as a testimony? She said... I was probably as strong the first day as I am now because of my belief. What an incredible, extraordinary thing to say. You know, years later she could say, you know, I'm stronger now. I'm strong now because of my belief. But I was as strong then on the first day as I am now because of my belief. Because she trusted in the Lord. You know, what a difference the Lord makes when we put our trust in him and we live our lives before his throne. Do you do that? We have a source of relief in his his throne to look forward to and a source of relief to turn to today. And then secondly, we see his throne will be a sign of restoration. And that's what verse 5 goes on to say. It says in the second clause, it says, and one will sit on it in truth, in the tabernacle of David. And if your version says the house of David or something like that, or the line of David, have a look at the footnote and you'll probably see it says the tent of David down beneath because it's the word for the tabernacle down there. 
as a sign of restoration. I don't know about you, but I love stories of restoration. I came across this one recently, a really remarkable story about a Canadian hockey player. You know they're really mad on their hockey uh, in in Canada. And this guy, Papin, he had been a a top player, and he had been awarded a ring, a $10,000 ring, gold ring, a maple reef uh, ring. These are highly honored prizes for the hockey players and he actually had fallen out with the uh, team they had actually uh, there had been some fallout with his team and his uh, and his manager and uh, he ended up leaving it and he didn't want to wear the ring anymore so he gave it to his father-in-law to look after and his father-in-law I don't know how you do this, but he lost it on the beach. <laughs> how do you win or lose a £10,000 ring on the beach? I mean, it's just crazy. Uh, and it was lost. And, and you know, they had, his father-in-law was so embarrassed, he, he had a replica made. <laughs> and he never told his son-in-law at first. And for 30 years, the son was wearing a replica And then one day, some guys with underwater metal detecting gear found the real one. They knew it was his because it had his name inscribed inside. And they returned it. And the father-in-law confessed and told told the story of what had happened. And he got back his real expensive ring. But what an amazing thing. And you know where they found that ring? They found it way out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. How do you find something as small as that, you know, in such a mighty space? But what a restoration. Well, there's going to be a mighty restoration when the Lord Jesus comes again. And we're told here it's going to be a restoration of something to do with David, the tabernacle of David. Now, this requires a bit of explaining, so I'm going to ask you to bear with me as I try and explain it to you. Now, when you talk about tabernacles, we're talking about tents, because that's what a tabernacle is. And the tabernacle of Moses is the first major tabernacle we read about in the Bible. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt as slaves, God showed Moses a plan for the tabernacle, which would be their temple, their tent temple, where they would worship God on their journeys. And they were to take this into the promised land with them. And when they came into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, the tabernacle was set up in a place called Shiloh. Archaeologists today, fascinatingly, have found evidence of the, of, of things to do with the tabernacle at the, remain, at the location of Shiloh, in, including finding large numbers of bones of sacrificial animals and holes in the ground where they believe posts were. And uh, it's an amazing thing to see how archaeology uh, matches up with the Bible, isn't it? It's fascinating. But that's where it was. But you remember in the days of Eli the priest his wicked sons and that. And then Israel went to war against the Philistines and they took the Ark of the Covenant uh, to war. But the Philistines won and they took the Ark of the Covenant, the central piece of, of the tabernacle, they took it back to Philistia with them. And they thought they'd put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Well, their god couldn't stand it. He kept falling over. And uh, they had to get rid of it because it brought plagues down on them, like the plagues of Egypt. So they sent it back to the people of Judah. And when it came back to Judah, the Ark of the Covenant came back to Judah. David brought it eventually up 
to Jerusalem. It was left at the house of a man called Obed-Edom for a long time. And then David brought it up to Jerusalem where his capital was when he had established it there uh, after King Saul. But David didn't put it in Moses' tabernacle again because what had happened was, we read this actually not in Samuel, but we read it in the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 7, that the, the, the tabernacle at Shiloh had been destroyed by the Philistines. God judged it. And God actually makes the argument that he's going to judge the temple in Jeremiah's day like he judged the tabernacle in the Old Testament in Shiloh and it will be destroyed like the house of God was destroyed then. And uh, that's what happened to the original uh, 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 tabernacle. So when David brought the Ark of the Covenant up, there was no tent for it. So where did he put it? He made a tent for it. But he didn't replicate the whole tabernacle of Moses. He just made a very simple three-sided tent where the Ark of the Covenant would uh, be put in and it would be open for worship and this was a remarkable thing now later they did repair and restore the tabernacle of Moses as well and it was set up on Mount Gibeon and we read about that in 2 Chronicles chapter 1 but David's tabernacle was spoken about in 2 Samuel six seventeen. it says so they brought the ark of the Lord up the ark of the Lord and set it in the place in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And that's what the tabernacle of David was. It was a a place that housed the Ark of the Covenant uh, until the time that the temple was built in the days of Solomon. Then the Ark went into there. And so did, by the way, uh, the remains of the two tabernacles go in there as well. And this, is, uh, this was a, a very significant thing in Davidic history because it was preparation for worship. You see, this, this was really a little foretaste of, of what was to come uh, in the gospel. You had a, uh, an open tabernacle, rather like the, the I always think, like the, the stable at Bethlehem. <laughs> Anyone could come. The shepherds could come. <laughs> Anyone could come. Jews and Gentiles could come. And it was open. They could come and worship. There was no sacrifice. It was just direct, not ceremonial, but spiritual worship. And it was a foretaste of what was to come. But when they put that in the, tam- in the temple, that was fine until Israel went astray. And then God's judgments came on the temple and when the temple was destroyed so was the tabernacle of David inside and this is spoken of in Lamentations chapter 2 verse 4 on the tent of the daughter of Zion he has poured out his fury like fire so when the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar the uh, tabernacle of David was destroyed as well And uh, it was uh, a a sad thing. And it became a symbol, if you like, of the collapse of the Davidic uh, dynasty. Because this was the tabernacle of David and the tabernacle had gone. And also the line of Davidic kings had gone. Because King Nebuchadnezzar took away the kings and put them in prison and, and executed them. That was the end of the line of David. 
and it was all over. And the two became a synonymous symbol. The tabernacle of David had fallen and it was like the house of David had fallen as well, never to come back. But the remarkable thing is, the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Amos both prophesy that this tabernacle will one day be restored. Isaiah, sorry, Amos chapter 9 verse 11 has this remarkable prophecy. It says this, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And God said one day that tabernacle is going to be rebuilt. And that meant two things. That meant physically the tabernacle of David was going to be rebuilt because as we see here, it was going to house the throne of the king when he came. It says in verse 5, and one will sit on it on this messianic throne in the tabernacle of David. This is an amazing thing. When the Lord Jesus comes back and he establishes his throne on the earth, where is that throne going to be? Is it in the middle of an open field? No. Eventually, they're going to build a a, a palace temple for him, as Ezekiel prophesied. But that's going to take some time into the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign, to build. So where's he going to be until then? It'll be in the tabernacle of David. And it will have a dual significance. Not only has God restored what was destroyed, but God has restored the Davidic dynasty. Because now one sits on David's throne again. The one who has the right the Lord Jesus Christ. So wonderful prophecy of restoration. And I want to say this week, looking at the news and what's happened in Israel and seeing the rise in anti-Semitism again in the world and, and uh, seeing those people shot coming out of the synagogue uh, in Jerusalem this week, you know, I, I'm glad to have this prophecy in my Bible. The God who loves Israel is faithful to Israel, his covenant promises. And one day in the future again, their king will reign on David's throne. And the one who was prophesied to Mary is sitting on the throne of his father David over the house of Jacob at the time of the, of the Annunciation to Mary. That really will be fulfilled when Jesus comes again. It's a a sign of restoration. So that gives great hope. I want to tell you what the throne of Jesus today is a sign of restoration. You can be restored to God the Father if you appeal to that throne. You can turn to God and be saved and Father God will receive you again today through the Lord Jesus Christ and restore you in relationship to himself. You can be reconciled to God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Then finally, we see this throne will be a seat of righteousness. And that's what the last part of verse 5 says. It says about this one sitting on the throne, he will be judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. That's the last clause here. Amazing story in the paper, really. I don't know how you do this, but the police last year pulled over this guy driving a Porsche down the motorway and he'd been driving his Porsche with it 
looking like this. And for those who can't see the picture because they're listening on audio, it's got a picture of a half a car wreck attached to the back of it. This car had been uh, uh, in a car crash somewhere and the driver had just carried on driving. He thought the best thing was just to get on and get home with the car, even with all this wreckage trailing behind him. Unbelievable. Uh, Probably another car's length of wreckage trailing along like this. And he didn't see what was wrong with carrying on his journey like that. So the police pulled him over and said, you can't drive the car like that. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, friends, he's not going to look at the wreckage of this world and say, well, that's fine. We'll just carry on as it is. Far from it. When the Lord Jesus comes back, there's going to be a mighty restoration. And this sin-sick world is going to have one almighty cleanup. As the king who loves righteousness, as Hebrew ones. Hebrews 1 tells us, takes his throne. We're told that he will be judging. And that's what Isaiah saw in chapter 11 of his prophecy. He will judge with wisdom and, uh, and with, with absolute perfection. If you go back to chapter 11 and verse 3, it says, His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So he's going to come and judge in righteousness. We see some of that judgment in Matthew 25 in the parable of the sheep and the goats in 31, verse 31 to 32, when he judges the nations at his return. And then we see he will seek justice. And uh, seeking justice means uh, restoring things and putting things right. I don't know if you've noticed this or heard this in the news, but the Netherlands has been plagued by uh, treasure hunters at the moment. It's interesting to me, I heard this because Samuel had been on a trip to Germany and they went through the Netherlands and I thought, I wondered if he'd see any of this. But apparently uh, some documents that were released, I think from either the German government or, or one of the European governments, showed that the Nazis had hidden large amounts of stolen treasure in the Netherlands. And so people are going all... And, and literally people are pulling the curtains in the, mo- in the morning and finding people with metal detectors in their gardens because they're looking for for the treasure that's been buried trees have been chopped down all sorts it's a real nightmare for them but it reminded me you know the fact that such injustice was done wasn't it during the war that still hasn't been put right you know treasure was stolen from jewish homes paintings were stolen they were never returned and things like this uh to other peoples as well when christ comes back He's going to seek justice. He's going to put right uh, the things that are wrong. And he's going to hasten righteousness. He's going to hasten in a righteous rule. How I praise God for that. I look at the sickness of our education system in our schools and what they're trying to teach the children and how they're confusing the children over so many sociological issues. When they teach maths and and things like that, that's fine. But when they teach my kids that you can be any other gender you want, uh, I'm not happy. And this is, this is how Christ will put the world right. He'll end abortion. He'll end blasphemy. It'll be a cleaned up world. And there'll be no escape. There'll be no escape. 
heard this wonderful story. It came uh, to me this week and I thought, Lord, that's just perfect. Uh, a story about uh, a man who was a, a, a lawyer for a murder uh, case in America. And uh, the, the case was coming towards its climax and the, uh, the man who was the, the defense lawyer for the man accused of the murder, he had, he had just one more chance to, to, to speak up. And it was an interesting murder case because the body had never been found. And he really wanted to uh, do something striking. And so he, he, he came up with this idea. And what he said was, he, he stood up and he said, in one minute's time, the person you're all saying was murdered will walk through that door to the east of the courtroom. And so the whole courtroom turned and watched that door for a minute. And nobody appeared. And he said, now, ladies and gentlemen... The fact that you looked towards that door tells me that you have doubts in your mind that this man really was murdered. Anyway, they went away and they deliberated and they came back with a verdict of guilty. And the defense lawyer came up and he said, but I don't understand. He said, you all looked towards that door. You all had that doubt. And they, do you know what they said? They said, yes. They said, we all looked towards the door, but your client didn't. <laughs> he gave it away you know what dear friends when Christ comes there will be perfect justice there will be no mistakes and his throne will bring in our seat of righteousness into our world how those of us who love the Lord and love the things of God and the principles of God how we rejoice at that and I pray that if you don't know his righteousness as your salvation even now you will turn to him because if not, that throne which is righteous will be the worst thing for you to appear before. Because the, as Martin Luther said, the worst news in the world is God is good because I'm not. Because I'm not. And he must find me guilty. But Martin Luther found in the hope of the gospel that the righteousness which will judge us is the same righteousness which can save us if we ask Christ to be our saviour and his righteousness is put to our account so we can have a standing before God where he can look at us and say, I find no fault in you because you're declared righteous because of my son. If you've yet to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour, do so today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's been lovely thinking about the throne.